0: was the editor-at-large at Inc. Magazine for over 25 years. He's currently a contributing writer for Forbes Magazine and is an author with five books. His book, Small Giants, Companies That Choose to be Great Instead of Big, was one of the five finalists for the 2006 Financial Times Goldman and Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. He's co-founded the Small Giants community which has been going since 2009. Bo, thanks for coming on the show.
1: It's my pleasure, Tats.
0: So so Bo, I, I, I ran across your stuff over the years because you've been so involved in the entrepreneur community. But what really kind of pushed me in your direction is I was reading uh, Doug Tatum's book yes. about sort of growing a business. Yeah. And then he just had all these warnings about don't scale it if you don't have to. Right now, listen to uh, Bo Burlingham's and his book. So, uh, (laughs) so what got you started on the uh, small giant?
1: Well, that's an interesting story. First place, I would highly recommend Doug's book. I think it's one of the best books out there on entrepreneurship. It was called No Man's Land when companies are too big to be small and too small to be big. And I, I think it's a it's a really terrific. Book and people read it, and they immediately identify. They can identify themselves. Now, what got me started on small and what got me started on small giants was really that I had written an article about a company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, called Ziggermans. and I I had it was a company. It was an interesting company that it started out as, as a delicatessen in Ann Arbor, and two guys had started it, and their goal was to be great and unique, and they didn't want it to be like a copy of any other delicatessen and they wanted to be recognized for their uniqueness and for their greatness, for what a wonderful place it would be and They started in nineteen eighty two and and within ten years, they really had achieved all of that. In fact, they were being written up all over the all over the place there were articles and Gourmet and Bon Appetit and the Washington Post and New York Times, every place about how what a great delicatessen Zingerman's was. So they came to a crossroad, which a lot of successful companies reach. And that is, what do we do next? Where do we go from here? And it was a question that they felt they really had to address. And so Although I would say this, one of the partners became very clear that they had to address it, and he sort of interrupted the uh, other partner in the middle of I don't know measuring cheese at the deli or something like that. And and Paul Saginaw said to his partner Ari Weinzweig, "Ari, we got to we got to you, you got to stop. We got to talk about something." And Ari said, "What do we have to talk about?" And Paul said what are we going to do in 10 years? Where are we going to be in 10 years? And Ari said, Paul, I've got to finish cutting this cheese. <laughs> Can you please wait for that? And so actually, they, that began a process where they talked about what it was. Now, they had lots of opportunities about... They, could have, they were famous, and they already had people sort of coming to them, wanting to set up Zingerman's in college towns all over the country. And... They could have easily franchised if that's what they wanted to do. They could have probably raised money and started their own Zingermans in other places around the country. But they decided they didn't. They really didn't want to do that. They had started the company in order to create something great and unique. And when you start replicating something, it's no longer unique by definition. And a lot of times, it isn't even very good, let alone great. And Ari White-like said, eat, Paul, Paul. He said, look, I don't want to spend my life on an airplane to Kansas City to visit some mediocre Zingerman's to see if the coleslaw is fresh. That's not how I want to spend my life. And Paul agreed and said, okay, well, I don't want to do that either. Let's figure out what it is that we do want to do. And they came up with a plan, and the plan they introduced in 1994 was called Zingerman's 2009, and it was their vision of what Zingerman's was going to look like 15 years in the future. And they they decided that, well, they would no longer just be a delicatessen. They'd be a whole collection of food-related businesses, and actually each of those businesses would be great and unique in its own right. So you could have a bakery, you know, you could have a coffee making company, you coffee roastery, you could have a creamery and make cheese and gelato. You could have restaurants, obviously. Well, there's a whole number of things that you could do. And, the, and their goal was they looked at this and, and the more they thought about it, the more they thought, yes, this is a good idea. This is the way we should go. Of course, a lot of people were telling them they were crazy at that point because because they had a, they had an absolutely ideal opportunity to grow just by growing over the country. That would be sort of the normal thing to do. I mean, I remember Ari at one point called me up and said, "Listen, we're planning to do this, but our lawyers are telling us that this is nuts." And I said, "Well, okay, let me give you somebody to talk to. It's not nuts. It's just different." So. And they had, and they wanted obviously to to have a great service for their customers. And this would actually allow them to have even better service because they'd be controlling, for example, the baked goods that they sold or the cheese and so forth. They wanted to have a great place to work for their employees, and this actually would create opportunities for employees. Some of those employees might actually like to run some of these businesses, and So, it would give them the opportunity to grow. And they wanted it to be, they always wanted to be great citizens of their community, namely the Ann Arbor, the greater Ann Arbor community. And this would give them more opportunity to do that. And so they rolled this out. And by the time I went to visit them, which was another 10 years later, actually in probably 2002, they were already, they were more than halfway there. And the thing that really blew me away was the kind of people that they were able to attract. I mean, they were able to attract people who had entrepreneurs who'd sold their businesses because they wanted to come and be part of this. People who'd been partners in national accounting firms who were willing to take huge pay cuts in order to be part of this. And it was just really an amazing collection of people to see and to see, having been... At that time, the business really wasn't very big. It was only about doing about $10 million, but they were a year, but they had attracted just an incredible lineup of people. And so I decided that this was something I wanted to write about. And I wrote an article for Inc. Magazine called The Coolest Small Company in America, namely Zingerman's. And it got a big response from our readers. The readers sort of turned on by this idea. And one of the people who read it and liked it was actually a publisher in New York. And he called me up and he said, I love that article. Do you think there's a book there? And I said, well, I don't know. It might be a book for Ari and Paul. I didn't see how there was a book for me. He said, well, come down to New York and we'll talk about it. And when I got down to New York, he said, well, I'm not talking about doing a book about Zingerman's. I'm talking about the fact that you had a company here that had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but chose not to because it had other goals they considered more important. He said, I wonder how many other companies there are that are similar to that. And I had been working at Inc. Magazine by that point for, I don't know, over 20 years. and I thought, "Gee, that's a really good question. I have no idea what the answer to that is." So I decided to go out and investigate. And I basically talked to everybody I I knew and told them what I was doing and I also went through back issues of ink and tried to come up with names of companies and I had no idea if I how many I would find or if I'd find any at all. And in fact what happened was that there were many, many more than I had ever suspected and that you could find them in pretty much any industry and in any part of the country. And that gave me the luxury of choosing companies that I thought would really allow me to explore this phenomenon and of companies, as the subtitle says, choosing to be great instead of big. All these companies were growing. So it's not about not growing. It was about whether or not they were willing to grow at any cost. And the answer was, I I was looking for companies that had basically said, no, that they weren't willing to grow at any cost, that they had certain things, certain ideals, certain goals that they wanted to accomplish. And so I, I did choose a bunch of these companies and I Wrote about them as small giants. And basically, what I looked for, they all had a certain quality, which I had seen in companies when I first started writing at Inc. magazine. When you, in the early 1980s, there were a whole lot of companies around that today they're household names like Microsoft and Apple and so forth, Patagonia. They were just young companies back then. And the best of them had a certain quality, sort of electricity about them. And I didn't have a name for it, but I came up with one, namely Mojo. This is, this was, it was actually one of the people I wrote about, Gary Erickson of Cliff Bar, who told me a story that, that identified it for me. It was actually about another company, which somebody told him had lost its Mojo And so Gary understood that, wait a minute, what's Mojo? (laughs) Do we have it? Are we losing it? And so anyway, all these companies that I looked for had it, and I wanted to know sort of where it came from. What were they all doing that allowed them to have this very special quality that made people want to be associated with it, sort of like charisma, Mm. when... When a leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. When a business has mojo, you want to be associated with that business. You want to buy from it. You want to sell to it. You want to work for it. You want to wear its T-shirts and caps and so forth. And I decided to look at what they did in common. And I wound up coming coming up with six Mm. specific things that I felt all these companies really had in common. What they it was really their definition of greatness. They all had a very similar definition. It really had to do with the people that they were associated with. I mean, number one, they were all being, one of the characteristics was that they were all led by people who had a very clear idea of what they wanted, who they were, and why they wanted it. And they really needed that because basically they were doing something that the people around them were telling them was crazy. That they were passing up opportunities, and they had to be really clear in their own minds that uh, that's okay. Uh, These are the other things that I really want to do, and and this is this is more important to me. The second thing was really the effect that these companies had in their communities. It's not just they gave back a lot to their communities, but they sort of the personality of the company was actually molded by the communities where they were located. Zari told me it's sort of like what the French call terroir, hmm. which is that there's a quality that, that that particular location has. Zingerman is very much a sort of Ann Arbor community. I wrote about anchor brewing, which really sort of started the whole craft brewing revolution and it's very much a San Francisco company. Now, you can have great craft, as we know, you're going to have great craft brewers all over the world. But in fact, Anchor Brewing was a company that belonged in San Francisco. It was a San Francisco landmark. And that was very important to its identity. So the third one I noticed really had to do with their relationship with their customers. And the thing that struck me about those relationships was how personal they were. I mean, even companies that had like hundreds or thousands or millions Mm. of customers still tried to make the relationships as personal as possible. It's one thing to do when you're small and you only have a handful of customers. It's another thing to do when you do have hundreds. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, one of the companies I wrote about was a, a record company called Righteous Babe Records. And this was started by a woman, a singer named Annie DeFranco, who's still performing, actually. And she just, she was being pursued by all of the big record companies who wanted to sign her up. And she decided, no, she didn't want to do that. So she started her own record company in. Buffalo, New York, and it became very successful. It began bringing out music from other people besides De DeFranco. And when I went to visit them, they would get emails and, and mail and gifts and all kinds of letters and so forth from literally all over the world, because she had all of these fans. And the fact is that every single person who wrote into Righteous Babe Records, received a personal handwritten note from somebody. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, herself couldn't do it, but they had people who really made sure that every single person who wrote in would get a handwritten note. And because that was, again, it was part of maintaining that personal connection. And ironically, the, the fourth characteristic had to do with the employees. Namely, in many cases, in fact, in all the cases, the customers didn't come first. It was the employees who came first. And of course, when you think about it, that's easy to understand, namely that after a company gets above a certain size, it's not the founder or the CEO who is dealing with all the customers. And if you want to have really great customer service, you better have employees who feel very good about the company they're working for. And that's Again, that was something that all these companies had. The fourth characteristic, I came out with the first edition of the book in 2005, actually end of 2005, 2006. And I realized very soon after that that I'd missed something. Mm. And because one of the companies that I had written about, a company Called Rayel Precision Manufacturing, which actually make laptop hinges. They they were when when you have a laptop, you open the top, it doesn't fall right down, and that's because of something called a constant torque hinge. And Rayel was by far the it was really the developer and master of laptop hinges, and they had been doing extremely well, and then. Shortly afterwards, I I realized that there had been big changes. They had two CEOs at the time. One of the CEOs had retired, and another one had been fired. And I called up and got somebody to talk to me off the record because they couldn't talk to me on the record because there were lawsuits all over the place. And I said, well, this doesn't sound very great. But I, I knew I had to write about it. And I wound up doing an article for Inc. Magazine, again, about what had happened at Rayel, And what had happened was that they had made a mistake. They had allowed, they had, when they were making these laptop hinges, it was one thing when all of the manufacturing was in the United States. Mm. It was another thing when the manufacturing moved to Asia. And they still continued to go with it. And the danger that they got into is they suddenly found themselves competing against other companies who could do what they did for much less money. Mm. And they had a choice. Either they could drop their prices and try and survive that way and maintain market share, or or they could let the business go. At least that's what they felt the choice was. And they didn't want to let the business go because it would mean they'd have to lay off people at their f- factory in uh, Minnesota. And so they decided to go after that business for good reasons, which was that they they really felt very loyal to their employees and they wanted to protect those jobs. But when you are letting your gross margins, you're, when you're reducing your prices to the point where you're not making any money anymore, pretty soon that catches up with you. And And if you don't carefully, you're not going to have a company anymore. And they they got in. That's what happened, which is when I went to visit them afterwards, they had really, they were selling more laptop hinges than ever, and they were losing money on every single one of them. And so that I realized that, that that was a factor that I had to do. There was a chapter missing from the book, and that chapter was How Small Giants Fail. Mm. And so I talked to my publisher, and we realized that we should bring out another edition of Small Giants. We became the 10th anniversary edition. And I included there a new chapter called How Small Giants Fail. And basically, again, I, I wrote there about there were like three conditions that I thought companies had to be very careful about because you can do lots of wonderful things for your employees and for your customers and for your community. But if you don't have a business, you can't do any of that. (laughs) So I said, number one, they had to protect their gross margins. Number two, they had to have a, they had to have a sound business model that was flexible enough to change because as the environment changes, the business model has to change. And number three, they had to have a strong balance sheet and that if they didn't sort of stay on top of their balance sheet that they could get into deep trouble and i gave some examples of companies that had done that and so that became the fifth characteristic the sixth characteristic really had something to do with the way their leaders felt about whatever it was that their companies did. Not just how they felt about their companies, but it was about Anchor Brewing. What did Fritz Maytag feel about beer? And another, there was a woman, a dressmaker. What did she feel about what she was doing? And there was this kind of passion that they had for it that you could see in all of them, in all of the leaders which is that they were so crazy about whatever it was that their companies did that they wanted everybody to feel this, to have the same feelings about it, to love it as much as they did, and that became contagious. Their love of the love of the business, really of of what their businesses did, sort of rubbed off on other people, and especially their employees, and. But also, this is where a lot of the mojo came from. Mm. And so I realized that that was another factor. In other words, these were not people who were just doing something because they couldn't find anything better to do. This was some big companies that were being run by people who really felt that what they were doing was important to the world. Mm. That they were making a contribution to the world by doing it. Mm. And... So those were really the the six different characteristics. And the book came out and it got very, it it hit a responsive note with a lot of companies and a lot of people. And I eventually, people were telling me, you've got a great opportunity here. You should should go out and you could create a whole organization around this. There, There are all these companies out there. And I thought about it. And finally, I was having dinner with one person, and he was a guy named Paul Spiegelman. And he was somebody, is an entrepreneur who had a great company. And he was one of the ones who said, why aren't you doing something with this? And I said, listen, Paul, I'm a journalist. I write about businesses. I'm not an entrepreneur myself. And I understand the difference. I don't think I'd be a very good entrepreneur. For a variety of reasons. But I agree with you that there is an opportunity here, but it really requires somebody who knows how to build an organization and who has the financial resources to be able to take lots of losses during the early stages of that happening mm-hmm. so that it can actually happen. And I said, Paul, if you wanted to do that, I would support you, but I can't do it myself. I'd be happy to, to lend whatever weight I have to your efforts to create a small giants community. And he took that very seriously. And in fact, he did start the small giants community with my support. And it's been going ever since. I mean, I, I guess we're We're going on 12 years now, and it's actually very successful. We do a summit every year, and in addition, the community has a leadership program because there are a lot of these companies where the leaders really identify with the whole idea of small giants. They want their companies to be small giants, but they have another generation coming up, and they want those people to feel this, the same way about it. And so we found that they're willing to send people to this leadership program, which is a great program. I mean, people love it. And so, and and then, you know, there are a bunch of other things that we do. And and then what happened was that Forbes came along. <laughs> you know, I was working at Inc., but a friend of mine who used to be my editor at Inc. At, wound up at Forbes magazine and he called me and said that he'd talked to people at Forbes and that they had they they like to do a list of the best small companies. But what they were doing was ridiculous because all the best small companies they listed were public companies, <laughs> and as you know, Todd, that, that's a very small minority of of small companies. Yeah, and so they asked him what they should do, and he, he said, "Well, you should use this." methodology that my friend Bo Burlingham came up with to select his companies for his book, Small Giants. So he asked me if I would come over from Inc. Magazine and and help put together this list on an annual basis. And I, I agreed to do that. This was in 2015. The first list we produced was for 2016, and we've done it every year since. We're working actually on the 2020 list right now but we get nominations from all over yeah. and the fact is, is that there are lots and lots of companies that have these same values and these same ambitions and they want to be great companies. in other words they want they want to create great places to work. they want to create great products and services for their customers. they want to be pillars of their community. And anything that they can do to do that better, they're willing to do. And if we can help them, I mean, there's no question that that makes the world a better place when you have people doing that.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the, the current companies that pop out from past lists that when you got in with uh, Forbes? Anything in the uh, building materials or construction space or just just other names?
1: Yes, there are. Let's see. I've got it. There's a design and build company that I can think of. There's one called Shawmut Design and Build, which is in Boston, which is a great company. And there are a bunch of others. There's an architectural company that we're looking at right now. And so there are all kinds of different companies. I'd have to go back and look. I I can't remember all of them. Yeah.
0: Any ones that stand out, like not outside those areas or anything in general. Like when you came over looking at the current companies, would we recognize any of these? Are these just hidden
1: gems? I would say some of them you might know depending on what business you're in and what industry you're in and what services you use. I mean, obviously, I've written a book, another book with Jack Stack called yeah. The Great Game of Business. and. SRC Holdings is one of the companies that we've had on the list. And then there are, I'm trying to think of their...
0: Yeah, Jack, Jack I guess he did the open book management, right? He's, he's famous. That's right.
1: Yeah. He, he pretty much invented that. And in fact, a lot of the companies, a lot of the small giants companies are practicing the system essentially that he developed at SRC, which is called the great game of business. and. There's actually a methodology that they teach to other companies, and it's so they've been very successful with that.
0: Yeah, what's just to go a little further on the open book? What are the challenges of getting people on there? Like they're interested, but where do people get stuck?
1: You mean with open book management? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually their own fears. <laughs> okay. The owners tend to be. Not everyone now because the whole atmosphere has changed so tremendously since we wrote that book back in the early nineteen nineties. But back then a lot of people thought Jack was crazy. It was like, What are you doing sharing all these numbers with your employees? And Jack said, Look, I'm gonna I'll put it in my words, but sure. He said, Look, you have two companies. Suppose you have two companies and they each have 100 employees. In one of the companies, you've got 5, 10, 15, 20 people at the top, and then you've got all the other people who are waiting to be told what to do. In the other company, you've got 100 people, and all of these people know exactly what the business needs to do to succeed, and can do it on their own, and can think about it, which of those two companies is going to be more successful? Well, it's a no-brainer, right? Which is that, obviously, if you have a workforce of people who understand the business, know exactly what they have to do to contribute to that business's success, that company is going to be much more successful. And that's what... There are literally thousands of companies that have adopted this system. And most of them say that it's when we ask them if they're applying for small giants, one of, one of the things we ask companies is what, what their turning points, do they have turning points? And a lot of them say it was bringing in the great game of business, that that was a, a critical turning point for them. And the numbers before and after are, are pretty amazing. Really? Interesting.
0: What other uh, turning points besides that do you hear about?
1: With the small giants?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you ask that question, what else comes up?
1: Well, let me see. Usually, often there may be a change in leadership at some point, and people will cite that change in leadership as being critical to the success, to the change in the company. Sometimes there'll be an event that occurs that has this huge effect on the company. But usually something it often has to do with gaining clarity mm. about there's something there's one company I'm thinking about that basically they were in terrible shape i mean they, they were a typical small business they were a sausage making company actually. Mm-hmm. and they got it to a point it went no it was a typical small business in the sort of a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> right where you had somebody at the top who basically was responsible for everything and everybody sort of wanted to know he was he felt that he was responsible for everything and he got burned out and he got really depressed and tired and he went away on vacation and he had an experience while he was away which he can describe better than I can but it was basically he came to a, a realization that he had to try something else and and that he didn't know what it was but that he had to be open to uh, new ideas about how to run a business and one of the first things that he wound up doing was bringing in something called value based leadership mm-hmm. and there's a whole methodology that is associated with that where you actually sort of a consciously you and your The people in your organization constantly consciously look at, well, what are our values here? What are the key values of this company? And then they think about what's their mission statement? Why are we in business anyway? Here, we're spending all this time here. We come in every day. Why are we doing this? Aside from the fact that we need to put food on the table. And so, and then they do a vision statement as well, which is, also part of value-based leadership, which is, well, where do we want to be in 10 years? If, if, if this is why we're in business, where do we want to get to? And those become very critical things. And, and then they were doing that, this company, the Sausage Company, that had a huge impact. And But they still had a problem, which was that their sales went through the roof A terrific increase in sales, but they were losing money. Mm. (laughs) They had two months where they lost more money than they ever had in their 20 year history. And so the CEO called up somebody, Vern Harnish, who is Mm -hmm. really the founder of EO, and asked, told Vern what was going on. And Vern said, You need the great game of business. And he put this person, Michael, is his name, in touch with the Great Game of Business, and they began implementing the Great Game of Business. And they went from losing money to the next, the first quarter of 2018. They were losing money at the end of 2017. The first quarter of 2018 was the most profitable in the in the uh, firm's history. So. Well those are kinds of things that happen that we hear about and frankly i'm sure that what's going on right now is going to that we'll be hearing about this about how this this is obviously a huge factor in everybody's lives here in the states actually in the world i shouldn't just say the states and things are are going to change things are going to happen during this period that will prove to be a turning point for for companies, hopefully a turning point for the better. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, Bo, I mean you have a ton of knowledge. I could probably sit here and talk to you for hours, but I know you're a busy guy. Is there anything that I should have asked you but didn't?
1: That's a great question. I have to say this, Todd. When I'm interviewing somebody, I, I get to a certain point and I ask them the same question. <laughs> what didn't I ask you that I should have? Look, you you did a great job. I mean, you're you're a wonderful person to talk to and, because you're really interested in this stuff and you really understand it. And there are lots of other things that we could... I mean, I wrote another book called Finish Big, mm-hmm. which is about exiting your mm-hmm. company and we could certainly talk about that for a long time as well because if you do a search on google or or whatever it is or starting a business or growing a business you get billions <laughs> literally billions of hits if you search for exiting a business you get millions <laughs> you might you might get 10 or 30 million or something like that but it's much less and so actually when i did actually start to write finished big, I realized I didn't know anything. I, I had one experience and I didn't know anything beyond that experience. So I had to educate myself. And so I went out and talked to as many people as I could who had been through it. And the thing that I discovered, which really surprised me, was that when you ask people after they had actually gone through this experience of editing Exiting their business, were they happy? Mm-hmm. And something like, well, at least fifty percent. In some cases, it, may, it might be more, sixty percent. Were not happy. Oh, wow! And in in fact, some of them were really miserable. <laughs> and and so, I thought, well, gee, that's a book. What's the difference between the ones who are happy and the ones who are miserable? Yeah. So that. That's really what Finish Big is about.
0: Yeah. What were the quick high levels on a few things why they were miserable?
1: A lot of them, they lost their sense of purpose. They they didn't know who they were anymore. They said the worst question that somebody could ask them was, what do you do? Hmm. (laughs) And they didn't know how to answer. And that's one reason. Another reason, if you've been running a business for 10 or 20 years Hmm. and you go into the office every day, there's a whole group of people who you get to know and you're very close to. Yeah. Suddenly you don't have them around anymore either. There are a whole bunch of things that have... Here's another thing. One of the things about being in business is that the business sort of tells you what you need to do Yeah. when you get up in the morning and, okay, well, what do I have to do today? And so forth, you have an answer to it. When you suddenly... nothing, Nobody, you could do anything. <laughs> that's actually not such a great thing. It can be very, very disorienting. Plus, after a little while, another thing about business that you get from business is you get a sense of progress. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're going from here to there and you're improving and so forth. Well, suddenly you don't have that anymore. You can just feel lost. And that's really what happened with a lot of people. I, I think that the but I decided ultimately that the biggest thing was something else. When I found people who had actually had good exits, almost all of them were engaged in helping other people. Mm. And I thought, particularly other entrepreneurs. And when I thought about it, I thought, when oh, your business, What are you doing? You're serving a lot of people. You go into business, you're serving yourself and your family for sure. You're serving your customers. If you're not serving them, you're not going to be in business very long. Most people, you're serving your employees. You're really, it's business is really, when it's done right, is really about serving lots of people. And that's where your sense of purpose comes from. It's like, I'm doing this because. You know what the answer to that is. And that, when you don't have that, it can be extremely disorienting. It's it's like, why am I here? Why am I on earth? And it can be, I mean, it can be very, very difficult. So I would say that people would ask me afterwards, well, how do I prepare for this? How do I think about this? And I said, well, think about who you're going to serve afterwards. Because you're going to need that in your life. You're going to need that sense of purpose that you're helping other people. And that is really the key thing. That's really the... the, I mean, there are a lot of other things. I I came up with uh, basically eight things that the happy people did that the unhappy people didn't do. And that's what the book is about. But if I think about the number one most important thing it's having that sense of purpose of who you are, what you're doing, and why.
0: Well, it makes a lot of sense, Bo. And you've been serving the entrepreneurial community for, for so, so long. And I thank you
1: very much for it. Well, thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon.